when people request baptism here in the church, uh, we meet with them, we hear their testimony, we take great pains in explaining what the gospel is. We want to know as much as it is humanly possible to know that those who are being baptized understand the gospel and have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. The gospel is good news. Euangelion is a Greek term. That's what it means, good news. And recall when the angel uh, appeared to the shepherd. Here's what the angel said. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The good news is that there has been born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The person of the good news is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to direct our thoughts to the book of Romans. I'm starting all over. No, I'm not. I'm not. I promise you. I, last time it took me four and a half years. But uh, uh, it was a long time ago that I preached from Romans 1, so we want to share a few thoughts. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, concerning his son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. The person of the good news is Jesus Christ. The gospel is about him. The gospel is not about improving yourself apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is not about self-esteem. It's not about being successful. It's not about health and wealth, as many are trying to make it in our day. The gospel is about Jesus Christ and the wonderful salvation he has provided for all who believe in him. So he is the center of the Christian faith. We have no Christianity without Jesus. If we diminish Christ, if we make him just a mere man, we don't have the Christ of the Bible. If we reject his uh, a substitutionary death on the cross that he died in our place, uh, we have ripped the heart out of the gospel. We may have creeds and rules and rituals and liturgies, but if we do not have Jesus and his death and resurrection, we do not have the gospel. John Stott is an evangelical um, Anglican, and here's what he says. The person and work of Christ are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. If he is not who he said he was, if he did not do what he said he had come to do, the foundation is undermined, and the whole superstructure will collapse. Take Christ from Christianity, and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. But who is this Christ? Well, the Bible says he is divine and he's human. He is God and he's man. His humanity is pointed out here in verse 3 of Romans chapter 1, concerning his son who was born a descendant or of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, Jesus existed before the incarnation. Because the Bible says in John 3.16, For God so loved, the world, so, so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus Christ was born. And for someone to be given to the world, he had to exist before he came. In fact, 
there were enemies of Christ. He had many of them when he was on earth, most from the religious part of society. And he made the statement, before Abraham, I am. And they were incensed by those words because what Jesus was saying, I am Yahweh, I am Jehovah God, come in the flesh. And that infuriated his critics. In fact, the text says they took up stones to kill him. Christ was born. He had a work to do. And his mission required that he take on human nature. John Piper states, God did not choose a man and make him his son. He chose to make his eternal one and only son a man. He was born of the lineage, the ancestry of King David. Why is that part of the gospel? Well, if you look at, at his lineage in Matthew and Luke, it is, uh, it is traced back to David, in one case all the way back to, back to um, Adam. But there were many promises given regarding an offspring of David who would come, who would be the Messiah, the greater son of David. So being of the descendant or the seed of David stresses the fact that Jesus was a real person. He, he had a lineage that went back centuries. But he's also a divine, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, the word means Savior, Christ, the anointed of God, and Lord speaks of his sovereignty, his, his divinity. In the uh, book of Philippians, we are told that Jesus Christ left heaven, came down as a servant, died on the cross. He was resurrected from the dead. Then we come to, great, to verse 9 of chapter 2 of Philippians for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is this name? This name which is above every name. What is that name? It is Lord. James Boyce says, we direct people to the Lord Jesus Christ. This Lord is the object of faith and its content. There is no other. Consequently, if faith is directed to one who is not Lord, in other words, to a lesser Jesus, it is a false Christ of the imagination. Such a one is not Savior. Such a one does not save. Let me just briefly state three implications or four implications of Christ being Lord. He should be Lord of our minds, Lord of our thoughts. Uh, do you ask yourself, have you asked yourself, are my thoughts, the things I think about, are they honoring to the Lord? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest of the commandments. Love the Lord your God with your heart, but with your mind, with the way you think. Another place, Paul says, we are destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You watch Oprah. Hope you don't watch her much, but anyways, you, you watch programs on, on television and you hear all kinds of, of philosophies and this spirituality and that the spirituality and 99% of it is contrary to biblical Christianity. 
It does not present the Jesus of the Bible. We, we must not be captured by the philosophies of, of this world or by the faults of religions of this world. Intellectual um, implications of the Lordship. There are, there are ethics involved in calling Jesus Lord. We are to bring every aspect of our life under his control. Lordship encompasses our beliefs and our behavior. At one point, Jesus said in Matthew 7, why do you call me Lord? Why do you use that term? But you do not do what I tell you to do. In other words, he is saying the word has no meaning, no significance. You're not serious about calling me Lord because you're not doing what I tell you to do. In the famous uh, Great Commission, the, the baptismal statement of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, go and make disciples. Well, first of all, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's his lordship, all authority. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. In other words, preach the gospel so that they come to faith in, in me. Then you baptize them, and then you teach them to observe all that I commanded you. This is what the church is all about. It is teaching the word of God, the commandments of Jesus Christ. John says, or Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There are, are vocational implications to the lordship of Christ. Well, you can say, that's easy for you to say, pastor. You're a pastor. Well, if I was a pastor and a missionary, I could understand that my vocation, my calling, has something to do with following Christ as Lord. No, every, every part of our life is to come under his lordship. Our time, our talents, our treasures, our abilities, our ambitions, our plans, our jobs, all come in the scope of the control of Jesus Christ. There are implications to our relationships, major implications when it comes to the Lordship of Christ. The New Testament is filled with commands and exhortations about how we should relate to one another. For example, we are to speak the truth in love. Not critical, not judgmental, not harsh, not demanding, not domineering, not overbearing. We are to encourage and affirm one another. We are to build one another up, and that's what we need in our marriages. That's what we need in our church. We are never to be untruthful, dishonest, or deceitful. We are to put the needs of other people before our own needs. That is the principle of self-sacrifice, self-denial. There are lots of passages in the Bible that speak of the relational implications of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says here in verse 4. Who was declared the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. Declared. Horizo. Now, the reason I'm saying that is so that you understand that our English word horizon comes from the word declared. Declared is horizo. English is horizon. Declared and horizo has the idea of marking off a boundary. It's, what's the horizon? It's the line of demarcation between the earth and the sky. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the line of demarcation, setting him off from all other people who had ever lived, demonstrating he was indeed the Son of God. 
He was no ordinary man. He died no ordinary death. When Jesus came into the world as a baby, he did not come with great power. In fact, he came in great weakness and helplessness. We have a lot of babies in this church, a lot of new ones in the last couple of years. And we just love them to pieces. But they're so helpless. They're so vulnerable. They depend upon mom and dad and sometimes grandpa and grandma for everything because they can't care for themselves. Babies are vulnerable and helpless and weak. And when Jesus was born, he didn't look like God. He looked like a baby. <laughs> but he was God come in the flesh. <clears throat> Veiled in flesh, we sing at Christmas time. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. While he was dying on the cross, we do not see this great God of power. He looks more like a victim than a victor. But it's a whole different matter when it comes to the, to the resurrection. Declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. So by that supreme demonstration of his innate ability to conquer death because he was God, he demonstrated his divinity. So he, he is a man of the seed of David. That's his humiliation. But he was resurrected from the dead. That is his exaltation. What is the purpose of the good news? And many things could be said here, but I want to zero in just on, on one area. The purpose of the good news is to demonstrate, to declare, to exhibit the grace of God. Paul ends, uh, begins and ends all of his letters with the word grace. Look in chapter 1, verse 7. To all who are beloved in God, call the saints grace to you and peace from God. Now, we come to the last chapter, and you'll find this in all of his writings. You can check that out when you get home if you want to. Look at the first few verses of all his writings. He wrote uh, 14 New Testament books, and, and the last chapters in these books. And if I can find Romans 16, here it is. Verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What about the nature of grace? What is this thing called grace? Well, I think most of us know that. It is the unmerited, the undeserved favor of God. Everything to do with becoming a Christian and living as a Christian is all founded upon grace. John MacArthur says, and this is a little bit of a lengthy quote, so listen carefully. Salvation does not come by baptism. We make it very, very clear to those that we interview before baptism. If you go into the waters of baptism as a dry sinner, you'll come out as a wet sinner. But you will not be saved. The water, the ritual, the liturgy does not confer salvation. Faith does that. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation does not come by baptism, by confirmation, by communion, by church membership, by church attendance, by keeping the Ten Commandments, by trying to live up to the Sermon on the Mount, by serving other people, even serving God. It does not come by being morally upright, respectable, self-giving, nor does it come by simply believing that there is a God or that Jesus Christ is his Son. Even the demons recognize such truths. It comes only when a person 
repenting of sin, receives by faith the gracious provision of forgiveness offered by God through the atoning work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes by grace. 100% of our salvation is by grace, 0% from us. Now, MacArthur says, the Lord never provides conversion without a commission. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That's the commission. So we have the effect of grace. Grace enables us to serve God. Grace is the driving force behind obedience to God. See, the Christian life is not like any other life. The Christian life is not a self-help kind of existence. The Christian life is all about the grace of God, the power of God by the Spirit at work within us. Grace is given by God, empowered by the Spirit of God. We're to live for the glory of God. When we begin to grasp and understand the whole concept of grace, then we capture the very essence of how we are to live the Christian life. Now, Paul talks about in verse 5, he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Grace and apostleship. Well, we have received grace if you're a Christian, but you're not an apostle. None of us is an apostle. But we can say this, through Christ I have received grace and a homemaker. I receive grace and being a student. I receive grace and farming. I have received grace and truck driving or working as a laborer. You fill in the blank, grace and. There's not a role in life that can be lived the way God wants us to live apart from the grace of God. Then he talks about for obedience of the faith. To bring about the obedience of the faith. His mission, his message in preaching the gospel, this is Apostle Paul, his purpose was to bring about the obedience to faith. Grace produces faith, which leads to obedience. So if you want to think of a formula for the Christian life, it's grace leading to faith, leading to obedience. What this means is daily life living is that we keep going to God for more grace and to increase our faith that we might be more consistent in our obedience. And finally, what is the ultimate goal of all this? We consider the nature of grace, which is God's unmerited favor. The effect of grace is obedience. And the goal of grace is in this expression, for his name's sake. For his name's sake. Here's what Piper says. The ultimate goal of all God's dealing is that his name or the name of Christ would be known, admired, and cherished, and praised above all realities. The reason you are alive is not to make a lot of money, not to have a comfortable life. It is for his name's sake. You are saved for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. 
This is why God makes all of our salvation and all of our service, no matter what form it takes, and all of our obedience dependent upon grace because the giver gets the glory when we focus on grace. Well, think about what you did last week. Think of the words you spoke, the choices you made. What part did the glory of God have in that? Did you do what you did? Did you say what you said for his name's sake? I believe every day as a Christian, we should begin the day with thoughts like this. Today, Lord, it's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's about what you want me to do. It's not about me being pleased by somebody or some circumstance. It's about my life pleasing you. It's, what, it's not about me looking good and recognition coming to me and approval coming to me. It's about approval coming to you by the way that I live. So are you living your life for his name's sake? We can do that only if we know Jesus. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because there was no other way to be saved and he wanted people to come into a saving relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So my prayer for you today is that you heard testimonies in the baptism as you have maybe no other Christians. If you had never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, can I say it kindly, don't waste your life living for any other purpose or any other way. Live your life for his name's sake. Begin at the cross by trusting Jesus as your Savior. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much.